0: This morning we come into Psalm chapter 20. And we are again confronted with what is called a royal psalm. That is because it deals with issues regarding uh, the king. Uh, Some royal psalms are written by the king. It was the king's words crying out to the Lord. Uh, Others are written uh, not by the king, but about the king. Uh, And from the royal perspective, um, this psalm is kind of unique because it is really talking to the king. It is the people of God uh, giving a prayer, a royal prayer, that is directing it toward their king. And it it starts off with a series of requests. It is going to be interrupted by a very unusual verse we're going to take some time on. And then we find it completed and even at the very end, the, the uh, desire for God and for the king to be responsive to his people. Now, as a royal psalm, we obviously know that it has a connection to our king, to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And so as we read through that this morning, I want you to keep that in mind. That we are really looking at the messianic. And in fact, the word Messiah is in this psalm, which helps us very easily make that connection, doesn't it? Psalm chapter 20. If you will read along with or follow along with me as I read for the end, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the King answer us when we call. We come to this royal psalm, and we recognize immediately they were confronted with a series of requests. And the requests are pretty general in nature, uh, simply because they do not, it is not written for a specific occasion. There's not a specific event going on here that we're concerned about. Some would say, oh, there's a time of, of distress in the country. Uh, that's not really indicated here. Um, it really is an indication. This is a, a regular Psalm that you would say perhaps a coronation or some significant event in the king's life. Now, um, the reference to Zion and to the to the tabernacle would kind of direct us that this is later on, after, had to be after David had captured Jerusalem. We talked about that in Sunday school, the adult Sunday school class this morning. And so likely it was written, although those terms in there could be pre-Jerusalem terms as we're going to see here shortly. And so this is really just general prayer, a, a prayer psalm, uh, that the people would do for leadership that is over them, uh, specifically the king. And when we, when we approach something like this, we, of course, don't really believe in royalty because we're American and we have a republic. Uh, and so therefore, we have democratically uh, uh, elected leaders and we somehow think that we are controlling our own destiny, that the, that the power is in the hands of the people. We have been instruct, told that, that that is what a republic does for you. Uh, and uh, everywhere it's been used it it really only lasts uh, two to three hundred years and then it collapses on itself true in Athens, true here as well and so we find that we are kind of disconnected from the concept of royalty that the king is not someone who is our enemy but he is our advocate he is our, our highest representation of our country and so as he prospers, we all prosper and everyone wants the king to live long. Everyone wants the king to do well. Uh, certainly if we have a, a wicked king, an evil king, you might say, well, we want to cast him off. But in fact, what we find historically is that the people kind of gravitate wherever he goes. That if he goes into idolatry, the people go into idolatry. If he goes into uh, violence, we People just tend to follow that into and and become like their king. So this psalm really becomes an important measure of saying, well, how? what kind of king do we really want? And you'll notice that on a couple of occasions, give our king whatever he's after. Whatever he wants to pursue in his life, help him to acquire that which he pursues. I say, well, that's kind of a strange request. Uh, what if he wants to pursue evil things? Um, but the heart behind this is that we're doing this in the name of the Lord. Our expectation, our desire is that this be a man of God, and as a man of God, of God's anointing. And this is the word that we're going to key in on here in the middle of this verse. This is God's anointed one, which means that we didn't select him, his physical features or his physical strength or his mental prowess didn't select him. He didn't rise on his own strength or on the strength of his, of his political connections, uh, but rather he was the anointed of the Lord. And on that basis is this royal psalm and all the royal psalms, that men aren't picking him, he is not necessarily born to it, He is anointed to it by God. Even though we have the house of David being established as the royal house of Israel, God still says, I will be the one to choose who of the house of David will serve. And so it wasn't uh, David's older sons that were selected. It was Solomon, one of the younger sons that was selected to serve. And again and again, we find God reserving to himself that right. I will be the one to anoint, to select your king. With that basis, with that premise, that this is God's selection for us, then this prayer becomes quite appropriate. Now, if you're God's man, God's picked you, then we want um, you to be successful in all of your endeavors because God has put you there, we didn't put you there, The army didn't put you there. You didn't put yourself there. And this is going to hold true not only for Judah and the house of David, but even for Israel, um, where God on several occasions is going to put a man in place and say, here's your job. Go out and do it. Um, And sometimes it's a very violent job that they have to do. They have to clean out the previous uh, monarchy of Israel to get rid of their evil. And so... Uh, again, we can bring this in and say, well, he's God's man to accomplish God's purposes. This prayer becomes valid. When we then bring this in, and so in our political experience, this is bizarre to you. Um, again, because you live in a democratic republic. And so you don't think about loyalty to a king and that they have a divine right to that office. Um, you believe that your leadership has a public right to that office. That is, the public has put them there. And that, that concept in Scripture is, is quite uh, wrong. It's just error. God says, no, you don't get to choose that. Every time people wanted to do what was right in their own eyes, it always got them into trouble. Always. That was always a problem when people did what was right in their own eyes. When they said, we'll go our way and go the way we think we need to do, um, God says, this is cause for judgment, not cause for blessing. Uh, Rather, we wait upon God to say, here's the leadership I have for you, and then we pursue it. And this psalm really sets that tone in our heart and our minds towards that king. Now, when we come to the Messianic aspect of this, and the word Messiah and the word anointing is the same word. The anointed one is the word Messiah. And so the coming one, the one that we are looking for to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we apply this now to, to him. And we remember, we talked about every royal psalm is going to be this. Every royal psalm follows is going to have this uh, behind it. That David or any other king is a type is a picture of Christ to come, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he is the ultimate son of David that we're looking for, right? He is that one. And so uh, we're going to be looking at that. And of course, in the uh, Septuagint, we have it again described for the end. When we combine the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning the end, Jesus Christ, with the anointed one, we have a very strong connection to Christ, don't we? And so we come to this say, have you ever, the concept of praying for Christ our King. That's a very odd thing, but listen carefully as we go through this, and we'll make that application. And again, we have one verse that is, uh changes its tone a little bit as we get to it. So our first request is, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And may the, the name, or it says, may the name of God of Jacob defend you. And it's that concept that, first of all, that we want the king to overcome evil. We want him to overcome trouble and those that would attack and try to destroy the work of God through his anointed king. And so basically we are saying against the enemies, may God give you victory. That's really what we're boiling this down to is that we're going to do this. Uh, we're asking God to answer you in the day of trouble and we're going to see that happen. You can go through the history of Israel when they, when they, when the king humbles himself before God, cries out to God, God answers. And this is the request. What should be our request towards leadership in our life? May the Lord answer them when they are in trouble. when The Lord defend them. The name of the Lord defend them. That is that when enemies come against that they will get the, the requests heard. Their prayers will be heard. And that's going to be a very important part of this whole psalm because when it's going to be talking about its sacrifices here in a couple of verses. Again, it's that whole idea may God be attentive to you. Because you're going to have lots of enemies when you lead a nation or when you lead the kingdom of God does uh, it have lots of enemies. And when I say, well, when you we apply this to Jesus Christ, is that an appropriate thing? May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of God of Jacob defend you. And he said you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May I remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. And So we come to this and the expectation is, is that, first of all, you are the defender of our nation. You will lead our nation against its enemies. And perhaps no king of Israel did that more than David. He was the defender of Israel. He is the one that established her uh, militarily. Certainly Saul had some benefits there, um, but it was under David that we have that military prowess exercised to the point that when Solomon comes on the scene, he doesn't have to fight because his dad did it all. His dad subdued every enemy around them. And uh, the one casualty of that was that because of all the bloodshed that David had to participate in to establish that military dominance over his neighbors, he says, God says, you're not going to build the temple. We're going to have your son do that. You can design it, you can build up supplies for it but the actual construction is not going to be under your authority. And so there there was a costliness there. But this concept of the king as being the defender of the nation, and so we want him to succeed, and we want God to be attentive to him when he calls out in times of difficulty. And so when we come to Christ, we anticipate, well, is God going to be responsive to Christ? this is critically important to your salvation, that the Son has the Father's ear. That the Son maintains the Father's attention. Because your salvation is based upon a mediator, a go-between, someone between you and the Father. And so he is not only king, he is also prophet and priest, and he stands there and it is absolutely necessary that the Father is attentive to the Son and so this prayer is appropriate that may God be attentive to you. May He hear your prayers. May He recognize your sacrifice. Now the sacrifice of Christ isn't necessarily a burnt offering to cover His sin. It is an offering to cover your sin and my sin. May God be receptive of your prayers against your enemy and if it, and if. Jesus Christ has an enemy, guess what? That same enemy is your enemy. Christ said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And so this becomes a prayer of representation that the king is our foremost person who is leading us. And if he has an enemy, that enemy is our enemy. To do otherwise is to be a traitor to our kingdom. Put that in perspective a little bit, when you seek to be friends with those who are enemies of Christ, you are a traitor to the Kingdom of Heaven, and you would never pray this prayer. It is essential that we understand the nature of the warfare that we are engaged in. That Christ is certainly victorious but that victory is empowered and made possible because of the attentiveness of the Father. And that's why Jesus Christ in Gethsemane pours himself out before the Father. That's why Jesus Christ on the cross pours himself into your hands, I commit my spirit, he says, to the Father. Not to the nation of Israel, not to the church, but to the Father. And that is, I trust in you that you will give me the ultimate victory. And of course, we see that in the resurrection. But there is a continuation that the enemy is not fully destroyed. We wait for Christ to come, um, not as the suffering Messiah, but as the conquering King. In that intermediate times where we live, the church age, and during that time, it is crucially important that we understand that Christ still has enemies. Even though he has conquered sin, conquered death, there are still enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ that encompass us. And so when we pray this prayer, may may God grant you victory, we are the benefactors of that only if we have the same enemies. If we are friends with the enemies of Christ, we are treacherous. And this prayer is meaningless. It's empty and void if you, if you ever pray it. But when we identify the enemies of Christ, when we say, and we ask God to be attentive, the name of the God of Jacob, to defend, to send help, to strengthen, to remember his sacrifice, his offerings and his burnt sacrifice. Oh, that God the Father would continue to empower through Christ, the mediator, for his kingdom, and whose kingdom we are. Peter says we're a royal priesthood. We are of a royal nation. That is, we are of that same kingdom of Christ, and therefore we are praying for his kingdom, not only to come, but that the kingdom that is here, the church, would be defended through the mediatorial work of Christ. So we pray that the Father might be attentive to the Son, that as we engage the Son's enemies under the leadership of the Son, that ultimately our help comes from the Lord. And this needs to be our perspective here. Uh, Just because we don't have a king over us doesn't mean we don't have, in terms of geopolitically, doesn't mean that this isn't appropriate for us. For we have King Jesus, and it is still appropriate that we call upon Him as our mediator to the Father, that we might access the power of being strengthened, of being helped, of being defended in the days of trouble that encompass the kingdom of God on earth, the church. Well, that becomes the initial request, those first three verses. We are given a pause here. To consider that. And now we um, go from this one general category. So the first general category is that we are able to defend ourselves, to hold our ground, to stand fast in the face of our enemy because of the king gaining the attention of God the Father. Okay, So we want to hold fast against the enemies that encompass us because of our king having such a tremendous relationship with God the Father. And that is where we stand today. That's where we move and act in that category that we wait upon and we pray for the power of the King to have the attention of God the Father. Now we go into another category. So that's the first category. We want to be defended from our enemies. We And in terms of the New Testament... Words that are used for that, stand fast. We want to stand, having done all, to stand. Stand therefore. And that's in Ephesians, and then following that is all the armor of God. Well, what are you armoring up for? And we're going to use a military word again here in a little bit. Uh, what are you armoring up? Well, you're armoring up for warfare. It means there's an enemy, and that enemy is very real. Don't go to the enemy's side. Don't be aiding and abetting them. For that is a treacherous act. When we begin thinking of our actions in that way, we can better understand the relationship we should have with these forces that are enemies of Christ. We come into the next category of requests. We're still asking for something for the King. Verses four and five. We'll see verse four. May He grant you, according to your heart's desires, added there, uh, and fulfill all your purpose or plans. So, in addition to defending against enemies, because really that is they're the they're the opposition. They are coming against us. So we want to stand our ground. We want to be able to endure. And we need the king's help. And ultimately, we're really not just needing the king's help. We need the king to be in a right relationship with God so we can get God's help. Now we're going to a different category. This is that God puts upon the heart of our king to that to and accomplish whatever it is he desires to accomplish. When you, we God give you your heart's desire and the plans that you make fulfill your purpose or your plans or your are your uh, wisdom, your counsel, I think is a word that's often used here, um, that whatever you devise for your kingdom, uh, that you might have the wisdom and that God might bless that. And that's essentially what's being said here. So now, not only am I dealing with defending against my enemies, I'm talking about, let's build our kingdom. What do we want our kingdom to look like, to be like, how we want to fashion it? What are some ideas you have? And, and certainly when we come into the life of David, we see him uh, really mapping out, if you will, the, the city of David. And we talk about we can visit that to this day, and they're uncovering enormous things in the city of David uh, that they have revealed only in the recent decades. And so he mapped that all out, and then he what was in David's heart What was the desire of hell? Well, he wanted to build a place. I live in a palace. God lives in a tent. That's not right. And he wants to build a temple. And so um, while God, as we said, didn't let him do that work, he did all the planning. He did all the preparation. He did all the providing for it. All of it was ready. When Solomon walked into the office, um, he really didn't hardly need anything else. Um, And David had set it all up. And if the materials weren't there, they were at least, prepared and planned for where they would come from. And so we find that um, this, is the, this is the positive side. The, the first one is defend us against our enemies, and certainly Christ does that, our chief enemy being sin and death. But ultimately, all the enemies of God that we encounter, are we trusting in the king and his relationship with the father, which is a perfect one. That's what makes our king, Jesus, so spectacular, is that he has the full approval and attention of the father. And, and so to defend us. Secondly, now, what do you want to develop? How do you want our nation to develop? And we want whatever you want. And may God want whatever you want. That's really the prayer here. May God make whatever you want, however that you want our country to go, that it happens that way. And God just gives success to all of your plans and ambitions. And when we come to Christ with this, we see, well, what is his plan and ambition? What is ambition for the people of God? And Christ lays that out for us very carefully, and so do the other uh, writers of Scripture and the epistles, lays that out, that God doesn't just want you to stand, he wants you to become more than conquerors. He wants you to complete that which which You have begun to, He he wants you to walk that walk in the Spirit and that He wants you not only to just be able to defend yourself, He also wants you to be able to have victory after victory spiritually. He wants you to be in the condition of Christ likeness, that you can walk in peace, that you can have uh, confidence in your relationship with God, that you can have access through prayer, He has structured the church in such a manner to succeed, to pursue the things God wants us to pursue, to build a church. Not just a church building. When we think of church, we think of buildings, but to build you. You are the church. The church are the saints. that He will build that up. And He says, listen, I'm going to my Father. I'm preparing a place for you. When I return, I'm going to receive you to myself. Where I am, you'll always be. Um, in the intermittent period of time, what's going to happen? I'm going to send my spirit among you. He's going to gift you. You're going to be able to minister the gospel to the lost. You're going to be ministering the word to one another. You're going to be strengthened. This is my design for the church. I'm going to place leadership in place, and I, and, and I want in, instruction there. I'm going to bring revelation in there. I'm going to complete God hit my word, and you will succeed. You will be strengthened. You will be, what's the term? Built up. The word is edified. I will build up my church. And when we do this work that we do week by week and and hopefully day by day in your own life, we see that God is not just saying take a defensive posture, but to be proactive in the building of our Christian life that we are being built on, brick upon brick, precept upon precept, uh, truth upon truth, that we just keep building into our structure of faith in our life, both individually and as families and as a church, that we will structure that, that, we, that God anticipates that. This is Christ's desire for us. So when we come to this prayer, may, may God grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill your purpose your counsel, your designs, May your design for our nation, what it's going to be like, uh, be fulfilled. Well, it has to be fulfilled in us. And when we take this prayer, and we bring it before God regarding Jesus Christ, our King, now we realize, well, if I'm going to pray this prayer, I should probably participate in this thing that He's edifying us in, right? I should participate in that. I should be growing in my faith. I should be Ministering my gifts to want to, in, in the church context, I should be an asset in the kingdom of God and not just, uh, be drug along by it, be a leech on the kingdom of heaven. No, I should be part of the active building process. And wow, when you look at some of the things they had to build, if you go there today, they're still impressive structures. When you think about how large these stones are and, and how well they are fitted and, and you know that the precision and the, and the work that was went into it, that that one man didn't do that, that it was a nation that did that and they participated with them and they, do whatever's in your heart to do. And we're all in with you. Oh, that we'd be all in with Christ to do what he would want us to do to build up his church to reach the lost with a gospel message. This is the the two desires of the heart of Christ for the church. This is his plan. This is his, his strategy. Not just to survive, but to build. And we don't ignore the fact that we have an enemy and we have to stand up against them. We still have to do that, kind of like Nehemiah building the wall, right? So everybody, there's... Somebody with a sword, and there's somebody with a hammer. (laughs) And you have the defenders and the builders. And this is the dual aspect of leadership. And Christ will defend us. He also wants us to build, but we have to participate in that. Just as we have to armor ourselves up for the defense of our faith, we also need to strengthen ourselves up for the building that he has called us to do within the context of his kingdom. Well, this second category of request is then followed by an understanding. We've been praying for the king, for the king, for the king, and now we realize we have a part. I've already alluded to it. Let's look at it. We will rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So as Christ, or as the king, prays for us, we are going to carry his name. The banner is the, is the emblem of the kingdom. We will carry that banner. We will be an active part of your kingdom. We're not going to just sit back and say, oh, I, hope king does, uh, I hope God gives the king everything he needs. No, we are reliable in the kingdom of God. To do our part, Um, we will rejoice in your salvation. And so, in the name of God, we will set up our banners. We will put our lives under the name of your king, under the symbol, under the imagery, under the uh, emblem of your name, O king. And we will put our lives on the line to defend your kingdom and to build your kingdom. We will set up our banners, and we will be glad to do it, knowing that your salvation is ours. When we come to Christ, understand his resurrection is now our hope of the resurrection. And so we have cause for rejoicing, and for truly rejoicing in what Christ has done for us, then we're going to step up, grab his shield, grab his emblem, grab his banner, and stand under it and stand for it. We're going to stand for His name. We're going to make it our cause. That this isn't just His kingdom, it's our kingdom. That we have joined with Him fully. And now we come before that with, you, with us behind you to say, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. This is what we are asking, is that whatever you ask for is accomplished. Well, whenever I think of what Christ asked for, I always go to Gethsemane, because it is summarized in, in just a few words. Christ's petition was, not my will, but yours be done. Not yours the church, but yours the Father. That This is the petition of Christ, is that the Father's will would be done. In fact, he instructs us in the model prayer to pray similarly what are we? What is part of that Lord's Prayer? May your will be done on earth as it already is being done in heaven. May your will be done on earth. Well, it would be foolish to pray that and then go out and do our own will and ignore the will of God. It's just as treacherous against the building of the church as it is to cohort with the enemy of the church of Christ. It is just as treacherous to undermine the structure of the church and the building it up of it um, either through slothfulness or through through uh division or through open opposition. That's why the church keeps is called over and over again to be at peace among yourselves, to come into like Philippians four and realize, okay, you people aren't getting along, stop it, get along. We are one. There's diversity, but unity because there are many gifts, but there's one body. There are many functions. We have one purpose. We have one head, Jesus Christ. And so we, if we undermine that building, we are just as treacherous as joining the enemy of the kingdom, of undermining the building of the kingdom. And so we put our name. We put ourselves, I'm sorry, under the name of, of God, we put that banner over us; we are his, we are part of His kingdom, and by this we will go forward. We come to verse six, and we are confronted with something very strange. Everything so far has been in the first person plural, implied or directly, and so the the people making the statement is, we, we are praying this, we, 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 and now we're going to switch to I, uh, which is a first person singular. Like, well, who are we, are we narrowing it down to one person now, instead of we, we're talking about I. And so we come to, well, who's the speaker now? As we transition from chap- from verse 5 to verse 6, who's speaking? Who is this I individual one? Well, let's read what the, this individual says. It says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed or his Messiah. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. The question is, uh, is it the same person that is talking about? No, because when we get to verse 7, it goes back to the we. And so we really narrowed it down to this statement. That is associated with a single individual. Um, and you won't find commentators willing to go out on a limb and say, who's talking here? Is it the king, um, uh, it responding to his people in the midst, in the middle of the song? Uh, possibly. Is it, uh, the psalmist himself interjecting this? Uh, possibly, or is it one of them? I would like to contend. That this is the king himself responding to his people. You've asked for this for me, both that we might be able to defend our kingdom successfully, we might be able to build our kingdom successfully. Here's what I know I know that the Lord saves his anointed. You've prayed for salvation, you've prayed for us to be saved, you've rejoiced over salvation. I know the Lord saves His anointed ones. I have that confidence that in the Lord. And so you have prayed for me to have a relationship with God. That based upon my relationship with God, my sacrifices, my obedience, that God might be attentive to my prayers. Here's what I know. I know, and I believe this is David himself, as king, responding to his people as they sing, as they shout out, "We, we, we, we want, this, we want this." our king, now the king I believe is responding here, is saying I know that God saves his anointed. I have that experience. Uh, I've already had that when I was being hunted by Saul. I knew that when I was in the land of Philistines. I know that God has preserved me. He has defended me. He will save me in the future. I have this confidence. I know that he gives I'm sorry, I know that he saves his anointed. I know he will answer him from his holy heaven. That God that the Lord will answer his anointed from his holy heaven. He anyway, might say, Well, that's not me. It doesn't say, I know the Lord will answer me, and that's one of the problems. We have this text. And again, I would contend that the king is going into the second person. Uh just as a method of approach, saying, I know the anointed, whoever that is. Whether it's me, the current king, or a future king, or the king of kings, I know the Lord saves his anointed. And I know, here's what else I know, he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. And what a powerful declaration of confidence. I know this. This is not hopeful. This is not wishful thinking that we're engaging in. This is not, I hope the king is doing the right thing. No, the king has full confidence in the Lord, not in himself, in the Lord, that he will hear from heaven. He does save. He will save his anointed, and that will provide salvation for everyone. If we follow the anointed one, the Messiah, we have confidence that God will hear him. God will answer him from his holy heaven. No question, no doubt about it, and this can only really be applied to Jesus Christ, who has 100% satisfied the Father and has 100%, without qualification, the Father's pleasure, grace, mercy, power. For the Father has accepted the Son's sacrifice, and has granted him the throne in heaven already. And so the strength to save has already gone from heaven, has raised up our Lord, and has has ascended into heavenly places with great power. And that strength is now directed towards us to save. That saving strength coming from the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father is Jesus Christ. The strength to save us from our sin comes from Christ. For he has already paid that price, and he is in that position of authority and power where he knows that it is already accomplished. He has full confidence, and we therefore should have full confidence that if the king knows this, is true, that we can follow him without reservation, without hesitation, without doubt. Oh, follow your king wherever he leads. Do not do these acts of treachery by joining with the enemy. Do not do these acts of treachery by undermining the building of this church, but rather participate with him. Keep his banner over your life, hold His emblem as the guide and definition of who you are. We now jump back in verse 7 to describe this strength, this salvation, and where it derives from. Um, we have those that trust in chariots and horses. Those were the highest military weaponry available at the time. Or chariots, horses. He says, Well, there are those that trust in those, in those things. Um, but we're going to find out what happens to them in verse 8. What's going to happen to them? They're going to be broken down. And I like how the and this is the translation of the Masoretic. Let me read it out of the Septuagint to describe what happens to it. Their feet, in verse 8, their feet were tied together so they fell. (laughs) You trust in horses? That's a foolish thing to do because a horse can easily be taken down. It's a fearsome creature running straight at you, um, but it's still a creature and you're smarter than a creature. And it's not that hard to tell you. It literally just says, all you have to do is Twist up it one thing around two of its legs, and it's done. It's at your knees now. So you want to trust in these other things for salvation? You want to trust in the things of this world, the wisdom of men, the best that they can put forward? You want to trust in those? They can get all tied up and just collapse. They're going to fall down before our king. Why would you trust in those? Yes, they're the most advanced things we have, Why do you trust in them more than the Lord? Do you really think any advancement of man has any comparison to the power of God? When it doesn't even have the sanction of God upon it. We forget somehow that God says, woe to those who go to an inanimate object and say, you teach us. The Bible says, woe to you people. Do you know what a woe is? It is you're tied up and on your knees and on the ground be ready to be chopped and hacked to pieces because you trusted in the technology of men instead of in the living God. You want to trust in technology? That's what horses and chariots were. They're the most advanced weapons, right? You trust in them? All we got to do is tie up their legs. What can they do now? I mean, it has no other weapon, does it? Other than its mass? Once you tie up its legs, it just lays there. It can't defend itself. Its speed and strength is all there. It can be tied up with a simple little thing and fall. And yet we want to trust in these things. Oh, the king might not. The king doesn't trust in those. Some trust them. What are we going to trust in as a nation? We're not going to trust in that we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have, have been tied up and have fallen. But we have risen and stand upright. And the concept here, again, that whole idea of risen and which is keeps coming up in these Psalms, doesn't it? Arise, arise, risen. You cannot hopefully miss in these early Psalms the place of rising up that even as our king has been resurrected, has has arisen, that we rise up and stand. While they are being tripped up and fall, we are rising up and standing. Their trust is their foolishness, and it is their demise, it is their destruction. Who we trust in, because we trust in the name of the Lord, is our strength, and we rise up while they are Tumbling down, we rise above that and we stand while they fall. Who are you trusting in? I made a statement at camp, and I better make it now so in case you hear it wrong from the kids. Okay? Um, if I ask parents, uh, can you send your kid to camp without a phone? Can you go on a long journey without a phone? Because here's what I hear parents say, well, what if something happens to them? What does that mean? What if something happens to them and they don't have a phone? What does that mean to you? Because for Thousands of years people traveled all over the place without phones. Did you know that? When I was a kid, we traveled across the country and we didn't have a phone. Sometimes we had everything we owned in a U-Haul traveling across the country in a beat-up vehicle that overheated. We didn't have a phone. What does it mean when you say, I can't send my child, or I can't go, we can't go on this trip without this device. It isn't safe. You're telling me who you trust in, or what you trust in. You trust in your phone. It'll get you out of whatever jam you get into. You're not trusting in the Lord. You're trusting in chariots and horses. The devices of men, instead of the name of the Lord. And I catch my own family doing that. I go up to the Bahamas, please take your phone. Why? I can't even use it up there, really. (laughs) There's not much service. Why? Well, that way we'll feel better about your safety. Why would you not feel better about my safety? Because I call upon the name of the Lord, I want to go and do the work of the Lord. For the glory of the Lord. That makes me safe. Safer than an iPhone ever could make me. I don't care how much coverage it has. God has perfect coverage of the earth. Do we trust in him? Or do we trust in chariots and horses? Oh, I know I stepped on a lot of toes, but that's what camp is for, and this is like after camp. You see, we can say, oh yeah, those people trust in chariots, they're fools. But we are just like them because we don't really trust in the name of the Lord. Because we make these statements and we have these fears and we are not dealing with those fears by trusting in the Lord. We're dealing with those fears by trusting in technology. Oh, I'm afraid something's going to happen. Why are you so afraid? Number one, and what do you think God can't handle that your phone can well, I can call for help. Hmm. I think that's what the next verse says. May the king answer us when we call. Which, by the way, in the the Septuagint, it doesn't say the king answers. It says, may God answer us when we call. The king there is God. Save us, Lord. And may the king, may God answer us when we call. I can insert your phone into this chapter because it talks about calling, doesn't it? Are you calling upon the name of the Lord? or Oh, no, where am I? Google, tell me where I am. You know. Really? Do you see how we have been moved very gradually in one generation from trusting in God to trusting in man? And now we are dependent upon that. And if that's ever taken away, and it can be very quickly, um, you can't use your phone unless you have this mark. That's all it takes. You don't take this shot with this computer chip in it, you don't get to use your phone. Because your phone will be tied to the chip. That if you don't get that, you can't use this. Oh no, now what do I do? i got to get that chip or I can't use my phone. I can't live without it. Or are we calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation? You see, when, when let's not disassociate ourselves. Some trust in chariots and horses. Let's realize that we are more like that part of the verse than the other part of the verse. And it will trip you up. The more and more and more you find yourself trusting in technology, it will trip you, it will destroy you, it will make you fall from your faith. We trust in the name of the Lord. Supposedly, we're supposed to be rising and standing upright. We're expecting God to answer us when we call. You see, there is a third category, and that third category is the social needs of the kingdom, of the people's needs themselves. So you have the king's desires, the king's building. You have the king's... Uh, defense and the defense of the, of the nation. That's in the king's hands. But you know what else is in the king's hands? Our needs are in the king's hands. And when they, they come to you, says, may he hear us when we call and Jesus Christ will hear us when we call. But we don't really believe that. Because you chat online a lot more than you chat toward heaven. You could drive without your phone. Did you know that? And you could talk to God without having to hold it to your ear and only drive one-handed. Or, I don't know how you text while you're driving, that's why you're worse than a drunk driver when you're texting. you got to have two hands, right? You see, you want to fill every single moment of your time with your technology instead of filling every spare moment of your time with the Lord. So, do not dispose of these last few verses as so though they don't apply to you. Who are you calling? When we call out who's going to answer, you expect someone on the internet to answer. I expect someone in heaven to answer. And Oh, that we would understand the nature of what is just being said at the end of this verse. Who is your king? What kingdom are you a part of? Are you acting treacherously against by joining the enemy? Are you acting treacherously by undermining the building of God's kingdom? And are you acting treacherously because you don't even trust in the Lord you're praying to? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for a powerful psalm. We're convicted, we seldom pray in this fashion, we seldom identify who the enemies of your kingdom are that encompass us, that we might be sure we're on the right side and inside the walls. Lord, we pray further that we might not undermine your building. As you seek to strengthen your church, to build her up, to edify her, that we might participate with your name on our hearts and in our mouths, in our lives. Lord, we're here today making a claim that we trust in you. And in just one area of who we call upon for help, we have exposed ourselves as trusting in chariots and horses. We do not call upon your name. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of our fears that the world has planted in us, that somehow you can't go with us wherever we go on this earth. Forgive us of those times when we have failed to ask you for help, but we've called upon the world so many times to help. Lord, we thank you for this passage to it out our foolishness. Lord, we pray for your kingdom, not only to come, for I fear if it came today that we would might be among the number that lack faith in you. Lord, we pray for your kingdom that we might stand fast in it and defend ourselves being well armored in righteousness, in truth, in prayer, in the gospel, in faith, we might stand to your coming. That We might pour ourselves out into the building of your church, strengthening her, Lord, that we might trust in you alone. Help us. And he pray, says, in Christ Jesus' name.